Thanks, Chris and Grace. Let's pray. Father, you are the King of Kings. And boy, do we need you as our King right now, individually, as a society, as a country. Lord, would you lead us in this time down, down good paths? And Father, would you, would you guide this time with your Holy Spirit to make us more into the likeness of your Son? It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, hello again, everybody. I'm David. Welcome. Uh, I'm excited today to begin a new series with you through the book of Esther we're calling For Such a Time as This. I'm excited for at least two reasons. I'm excited because it gets us back into the Old Testament. One of my goals here at Current is to give us a well-rounded biblical diet of God's word. And the Old Testament really is the scriptures leading up to Jesus' life and ministry. We spend a lot of time obviously studying Jesus and the letters written to the early church, but it's good to get into the Hebrew scriptures as well. So I'm excited to get into that, but I'm also excited to get into the book of Esther because of how relevant it is to our lives today. I mean, I was already planning to get into Esther this summer, but now with all that's going on in our world and in our country, it is all the more relevant to our lives. Uh, we see it, its relevance in at least three ways. For starters, at the high level, we learn from the book of Esther that God is always at work even when it seems like he isn't. God is always at work. In fact, the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that never even references God a single time. Isn't that interesting? But if you read the book um, from, its, from beginning to end, you'll see that event after event and seeming coincidence after coincidence all adds up to, no, 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 it's, it's very clear that God is at work and has always been at work. And that's really relevant to our lives today because many are asking right now, where's God at in the midst of all that's going on? Esther shows us that God is at work even when it appears like he is absent. But we also see here in the book of Esther that God cares deeply about social justice and reconciliation and that he wants to use those who are willing to partner with him and will even use those who are unwilling to partner with him. The two main characters, Esther and Mordecai, um, are people who on the surface seem pretty insignificant and yet God uses them to deliver a whole people group. And then on the flip side, you have the very insecure and power-hungry King Xerxes and his right-hand man, Haman, who are just using their power to really to, to make life miserable for people. And yet God weaves even their actions toward his good plan. And then finally, we see in the book of Esther that uh, principles for how to follow God in morally, spiritually, culturally ambiguous situations when really we're flying blind and it's hard to figure out what the right thing to do is. Can God work in situations like that? Does God work in situations like that? The book of Esther shows us yes. And actually that's our focus today here in the first chapter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at chapter one in its entirety, but I'm going to read now the first nine verses. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. 
in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings of marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now this all took place roughly 483 years before Christ, when the Jews were living in exile. Uh, years before, they had been conquered by the Babylonians, who in turn were conquered by the Persians. And God had been warning them through his prophets that this would happen. In fact, much of the Old Testament is prophet after prophet warning God's people, the Jews, to turn back to him because they had been following other idols, worshiping other gods. And what's more is they had been committing gross acts of injustice, not taking care of the foreigner among them, the widow, the fatherless, the poor. Isn't that interesting? God said, you got to turn back to me in my ways in, this, in these regards, or I'm going to remove my protection from you. Well, they didn't, and sure enough, he did remove his protection from them, and they were conquered. And so now that sets the scene for this time in the book of Esther where they are living in exile. Really, God's people are living in a land, of course, but also culture not their own. And in a place where being a follower of God puts them at odds with that culture, which makes it very relevant for us today. What we see here are three ways we can follow God in a disconnected world. Uh, the first is we need to identify the idols. We need to identify the idols. Now, what are idols? The Bible talks a lot about idols and idolatry, and not just in the sense of worshiping little figurines, but an idol is really looking to anything in place of God for our ultimate sense of meaning, purpose, value, identity, things that can never satisfy, things that only God can satisfy us for. And whatever we adore, we advertise, whatever we're passionate about will inevitably be displayed. Well, King Xerxes' idols are on full display here for 180 days of feasting. Uh, did you get that on first reading, that there was a party lasting 180 days? Uh, that's pretty crazy. But while his idolatry and their idolatry and all of its extravagance might seem over the top and on the surface completely different from our own, the reality is their idols are actually very similar to the idols that we follow today as well and are in our culture. Uh, look at verses 1 through 3. First, we can see that, that we can follow the idol of achievement, what we achieve. At the time, the Persian Empire was the largest the world had ever seen. Verse 1 tells us that King Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to modern-day Turkey and northern Africa. And really, the idol of achievement, you know, worshiping success, if you will, is nothing new. And it's something our culture, of course, here in the Silicon Valley, uh, does bend the knee to. 
And that's why we are always finding little ways in conversation to try to slip it in there, like what we're about, what we've accomplished, what we do. Uh, just this last week, one of our leaders were, was sharing how he, he says it's easy for us to believe the myth of meritocracy, this idea that we are, we are self-made, that our success and achievement is just because of our own actions and our own choices. But the reality is our success and achievement is only because of the work of others and the lives of others, let alone God's provision in our lives and the gift of life itself. But it's easy for us to bow the knee to the idol of achievement. Uh, we can also bend the knee to the idol of perception, how we are perceived. Look at verse 4. For a full 180 days, King Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Uh, that word displayed can also be translated showed off. And he wasn't just showing off to the nobles and VIPs. Look down at verse 5. It says he was showing off even for, for all the people from the least to the greatest. Xerxes here was trying to gain people's approval, to shape how people perceived him. And I know this gets a lot of talk, but social media is a platform that we can easily bend the knee to, how, to, the, to the idol of perception here in terms of displaying ourselves in a certain way. Um, reacting uh, in a certain way in our hearts or, or whatever sense when, when people like our photo or don't like our photo or respond in a certain way or don't respond in a certain way or we compare ourselves. But it doesn't have to just be this big public display. We can serve the idol of perception in, in our own family in the way that we just put ourselves on display uh, for significant others in the workplace, in a group of friends. And we all know that if we live by the praise and approval of others, we also die by their criticism and rejection. It's easy to bend the knee to the idol of perception. And then there's this other idol or two here that's kind of in the background, not really explicitly said here in Esther 1, but it's there. It's the idol of comfort and, and the idol of complacency. You know, King Xerxes here is throwing this incredible feast for basically the VIPs, and yet he throws a little nod to the people of lower classes. But really, this is all on the backs of oppression and oppressed people, including the Jews, whose lives were miserable because of King Xerxes and, and what he did and, and, and his power and how he, how he ruled over them. This is really important for us to consider, I believe, today here in America, because there's this moment for us to lean into. There's a moment for those who are privileged in America to question if they are serving, if we are serving the idol of comfort or complacency. Because if we just think or say, you know what, what's happening in America is it's not my concern, or it's happening over there, there's no role for me to play, why should I care what other people are dealing with, why should I be bothered to do, then we could easily be serving the idol of complacency and comfort, as opposed to being willing to get uncomfortable and, and, and extending empathy to understand other people's experience in the same society that we live in. And only for, different, for reasons of, of having a different skin color or different background, it's really easy to serve the idol of comfort or complacency. And then we also see the idol here in verse 6, the idol of possessions or what we have. Verse 6 says, The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material. That might not seem like 
all that, but if you know the history here, you know that purple cloth back in that day was extremely hard to come by. It was extremely treasured and, and, and valuable, valued back then. Families would s save and save and save just so they could purchase one piece of purple fabric back then that would be serve as an heirloom. And here, King Xerxes had all the purple fabric out there in his backyard in the gardens. And then there's these couches of gold and silver, it goes on to say. I mean, that's just crazy. Couches of gold and silver. I think about like, you know, my white gold wedding band, it being you know fashioned into a massive couch. I mean, it's just crazy. But while this might all seem over the top and extravagant, how many of us say lay awake at night worrying about finances or what we have or what we could have? It is really easy in the Silicon Valley in our culture to bend the knee to our uh, to the idol of possessions or what we have. But then here's another idol here in verse 7, the idol of, of consumption or what we consume. It says, The wine was served in goblets of gold. Royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. That's language of do whatever you want to do. If it's on your heart's desire, no restrictions, just pursue pleasure, uh, regardless of the cost. And not just wine, not just what we can consume, uh, uh, but also you see the consumption of, of objectifying people, in particular women. Uh, women back then were viewed as property. If you look at the next few verses that we haven't yet read, uh, you'll see in verse 10 that King Xerxes, in a drunken stupor, summons Queen Vashti to come and be displayed, for her beauty to be displayed. Uh, we don't know exactly the context for why he summoned her in this way, but Jewish sources down, down the ages say that it's likely that there was a debate going on between him and, and others about who the prettiest girls were in the, in the kingdom. And he's just like, I'm going to settle this debate and have Queen Vashti come out and show you guys. And then let's not tone it down here. If you look at verse 11, though it's not explicitly said, it's pretty clear that he summoned her to appear before everyone wearing only her crown. Here's the thing about idols. Uh, they demand a sacrifice. And here we see that women in this culture were viewed as property. Sexual objects for pleasure. And again, while we not, might not relate to the extravagance of the feast and all that was going on in this event, what is pornography? And how is that much different from a woman being summoned wearing only a crown? What the Bible teaches us is when pleasure is divorced from God's purpose, it can easily lead to ruin. The slogan then and the slogan today is do whatever you want regardless of the consequences, regardless of the consequences on our souls, regardless of the consequences on our society, regardless of the consequences of people groups. Do whatever you want. No restrictions. As extravagant as King Xerxes' idols were, they're actually not that different from our own. The human heart is the human heart, but Christian friends, what the Bible teaches and what life teaches is idols always demand a sacrifice. There are always consequences when we don't see them, even, even when we don't see them right away or refuse to see them. But this is why God in his first of the Ten Commandments said, thou shall have no other gods before me. 
That was not a commandment of restriction, but a commandment of freedom and life. He was saying, serve me alone because I alone will meet your deepest longings and needs unconditionally. But if you look to anything else for your purpose, your meaning, your identity, it can only and will only let you down. You need to look to me uh, for your salvation, for your meaning, for your purpose. So first, we see that we need to identify the idols. Second, we see that we need to settle our convictions. Look, everything is fine in this story until someone says no. Queen Vashti refused to be put on display. And as soon as she did that, uh, boy, she was putting herself at risk. But she was doing that for the sake of not only her own dignity, but for the dignity of women. And her refusal really sets up the rest of the story, really sets up Esther and Mordecai standing up for their own convictions when the time comes. Because when they stand up for their convictions, it will put them at odds with the culture. Look, if you are going to follow the way of Jesus, if you're going to follow the way of truth, if you're going to follow what he says is right and wrong, know this, at times it will put you at odds with the culture. What God teaches in his word about sex, about power, about money will put you at odds with the culture. So you need to settle your convictions. A conviction is when a truth becomes personal to you. And let me just ask, where are you getting your convictions? You know, we had an interesting talk around Alpha in our Alpha group a few months ago. Our Alpha is a, a group uh, for those exploring Christianity. And it was just a really interesting conversation. I loved how authentic people were sharing. But there was this idea of like the moral standards that we hold. And a few folks were saying, you know what, I realized that I've been holding to my own moral standards. Like, and, and the reality is if I hold to my own moral standards for my convictions, that if, if those are my baseline, then what ends up happening is I end up shifting around my moral standards as it suits my purposes. And I thought that was really uh, telling as it was really refreshing to hear someone so vulnerably share. But the reality is, if our convictions are based on what we think is right or wrong, those will only shift. We are our own gods. King Xerxes looked for others uh, for his convictions. Look at verse 13. It says, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. It's noteworthy that every place in the book of Esther where King Xerxes needs to make a big decision, he goes and he consults his quote-unquote wise men. But there, he's only ever asking for what serves his ego, never looking for what is true. But when you stand on the conviction of God and his word and what his word teaches, the way of truth, know this, when you do it, it will put you at odds with the culture. There will be consequences. So we need to identify the idols in the culture, in our own lives and hearts, and we need to settle our convictions so that we can stand for them. But know this, we also must, and this is our last thought, count the cost. We see that we need to count the cost. Queen Vashti refuses to be put on display objectively, and it sets off a series of just terrible events. In part, I'm actually surprised that Queen Vashti wasn't killed on the spot. From what we know, even just from the book of Esther, King Xerxes 
in most cases, I would have thought would have killed her right then and there, but he doesn't. He banishes her. Even still, the response that he has to her is so out of proportion with what happened. They send out a decree that all women should behave in such a way that Queen uh, Vashti has, has displayed, that they should not do that. Uh, here's a summary of the decree. An advisor comes to King Xerxes and says, If it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of, the, of King Xerxes also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, and so they carried it out. Uh, there was incredible cost here. Esther, who is the one we're focusing on in this series, in this book, uh, in many ways will end up embodying the very things that we tend to prize. She will come to power, great wealth. She has incredible beauty. But there will come a moment when she experiences a crisis. And not just a political or social crisis, but a crisis that becomes personal to her, where she will have to settle her own convictions and count the cost for standing up for it. In fact, the end of this chapter sets up the scene when Esther will face something very similar to Queen Vashti here. And the question is asked, what will she do in that same position? And her story is ours. Will we stand up for what's right and for what's wrong, even if it puts us at odds with others, even if it puts us at odds with the culture? Um, many of you are in the thick of this, trying to stand up for what you know is right, trying to stand up for the scriptures of God and his, and his ways. And perhaps you are wrestling the question, that many inevitably will ask is, but where is God at in the midst of it all? And is it worth it? Some of you are making decisions right now. You're saying, I am going to follow God and what the Bible says on issues of money and what the Bible says on issues of sexuality and what the Bible says on issues of power. I'm going to trust God because I know he knows best, but it's hard because there's a sacrifice. And you begin to ask, but is it worth it? And why is it so hard? And where is God at in the midst of it all? Where is he? You see, just like in the book of Esther, God may appear to be hidden, but he is at work. The one who seems to be in control, King Xerxes, turns out, is not actually in control. And friends, this is the good news that this book shows us, is that rulers and powers in this world will not get the last word. You see, this portrait of a bad king prepares our hearts to receive the perfect king. King Xerxes, who claimed to be God, was merely a man. But the king, Jesus, who was God, made himself man. And Jesus did not use people to build his throne, but he left his heavenly throne to serve. And to serve those who, whom society disregards and writes off. And Jesus did not separate himself from the poor and needy, but identified himself with the poor and needy. 
And Jesus told stories and parables with conclusions like throw feasts, but don't throw feasts and just invite the VIPs and the people you know in your life to them. Invite the least of these, for this is the work of God. The bad king used his power to exploit people, but King Jesus will never exploit you. Jesus brings dignity, power. He frees us from idols, from our vanity, from our pride, from our insecurities. Jesus is our king who didn't just count the cost, but he paid the cost. That's the gospel, that he went to the cross to die for our sins. He lived the perfect life, not pursuing the idols of this world, sacrificing it all, counting the cost, and not just risking his life, but giving his life that we can be brought back into relationship with him through faith in what he has done. You can put your faith in him today. Receive what he's done for you by believing in what he's done for you. And we'd love to give you an opportunity to do that, come alongside you in that. If you're at a place where you'd like to take that step, put your faith in Jesus, let us know. We'd love to love come alongside you in that. And you see, when it seems like God is absent, he is working. It might seem like he's hidden, but he is working. And so even when you and I are tempted to ask the question, where is God in the midst of all of this? Is it worth it? We know he's there. He's working. He cares. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus settled the matter once and for all. Because we see that we serve a king who is all in for us and for all people to flourish. And he didn't just settle it for the next life, which, friends, the next life is going to be amazing. You know, the Bible ends with a feast that King Xerxes' feast pales in comparison to. It's going to be an incredible feast. You know how that feast is described? The feast is described that there will be people groups of all, uh, every nation, tongue, and tribe there. There's going to be no more tears, no more pain. It's going to be a feast like no feast we could even imagine. But you know what, friends? If that feast is coming, we've got work to do now. We have invitations that need to be made. We have to settle our convictions, hold them, stand for them. And we have to count the costs in this life. Even when it's hard, we need to stand for what is good and what is right and against what is wrong. And know that if this is you, this is what you're feeling, this is what you're in the midst of, that you're in good company because this is the way of our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life, laid down his wealth, his prestige, his achievement, his possessions to give us life so that we can receive that life and offer it to others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account of Esther. Uh, this account that at first pass might seem irrelevant to us, but the reality is very relevant, very familiar to us. Thank you for the reminder that the human heart is the human heart and our culture is not much different. Would you please help us as followers of yours identify the idols in the culture and in our own hearts and settle our convictions, stand for them, counting the cost. And for those who are in the thick of feeling all this, would you all the more strengthen them for this work? We ask this for all of us and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pass things back over to continue this time of worship. <laughs>